This morning, I want to talk to you for a little while about the tears of Jesus. The day God cried. Three places and only three where Jesus cried. Garden of Gethsemane as he looked to the cross. Afraid the way you're afraid. Lonely the way you're lonely. Had to have people with him and those guys went to sleep looking at the cross and knowing what it was going to cost. And his sweat looked like drops of blood and the tears you assume were there. And then there's a graveyard where Jesus wept when his friend Lazarus died. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Bob e uh, Bobby Evans asked me to write a eulogy for her husband. And you say, Steve... I didn't know Norm died. He was the end at that perfect Miami season, then went out to play for the Seattle Seahawks. And I don't know anything about football, but I've loved Norm for 40 years. And she wanted him to hear good things before his funeral happened. So I wrote something and then found out this past week that Norm has gone into a coma and it's a very hard place. So if you pray for him, and I'm praying that God restore him, but when, when he dies, I'm going to weep. Uh, Jesus understood that. And then this morning, there's another place where he cries, and it is in the middle of the triumphal entry, or just before that, when he looks over a hill in the at the city of Jerusalem. You say, Steve, I'm going through a hard time. You know, my daughter's pregnant and there's no husband. I've lost my job. I can't make the mortgage payment. My husband said he doesn't love me anymore. I'm going, and you're going to talk about the tears of God. Thanks a lot. I'm already having a bad day. Do you? Did you hear the story about the time uh, Peter was having trouble getting everybody through the gates in heaven and he decided to prioritize and let the ones who had had a bad day get in first? said to the first man, how about your day? He said, a really bad day. I was convinced that my wife had been unfaithful to me and I came home early and I was going to catch him. And I came into the house and I looked around and I couldn't find him anywhere. I looked in the bathrooms and the kitchen, finally walked out on the porch of our 15th story condo. And uh, there was a man hanging over the edge. So I went and got a hammer. And I hit his fingers until he fell off. And then I looked down. He'd fallen into soft bushes. He was getting up and moving. So I went and lugged that heavy refrigerator out on the porch of my condo, pushed it over, and that sucker died. And I did too. I had a coronary from dragging that refrigerator. Peter went, oh my, you have had a bad day. You, you come on in. Next guy said, what about you? And he said, I was exercising on the 16th floor where my condo was out on the porch. And I slipped and fell over the edge. But I managed to catch 
the rail of the apartment below me. And this nutcase came out with a hammer and started beating on my fingers until I had to let go. Fell in the bushes, but I was still alive. I couldn't believe it until I looked up and this refrigerator is coming at me. And Peter said, good heavens, man, that's bad. You come on in. And Peter went to the third man and said, well, what about you? He said, you're not going to believe this. Picture this. You're naked, hiding in a refrigerator. <laughs> you know, years ago, I read uh, Elton Trubud's book, The Humor of Christ, and I love that book. And I love some of the productions that are done today. There's one on the Gospel of Mark done by our Pentecostal brothers that is just superb. Jesus is different from what you think. But sometimes we forget that the prophecy about the coming Messiah in Isaiah 53 says that he will be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Case in point, city of Jerusalem, 33 A.D. Let me read first from the 23rd chapter of Matthew. That's a very harsh chapter. Jesus has just said some really harsh things to people like us. This chapter, and these angry things, you hypocrites, is not given to the whores and the drunks. It's given to the church people. But you can see Jesus' heart at the end as he looks over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, this is the 27th verse of the 23rd chapter. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then if you have your Bible, flip over to a parallel text in the 19th chapter of Luke, where Jesus is preparing for the triumphal entry into the city. And this is what Dr. Luke writes. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to pose a question to you, and it's this. Why did Jesus cry? 
It was a hard time. He was facing the cross, but he knew about the resurrection. He knew things were going to be all right. Outside of time, he knew the end, and he knew who was going to win. Why in the world did he cry? But before we find some answers to that, let me, let me take just a minute and go down a side road. Son, watch my Bible. Anything happened to it, you're in trouble. I'm a praying man, and I prayed for people to, that get the fever and die. So make sure that's there when it's over. I want to take just a minute and go down a side road. And the side road is this. Please note that in the midst of the party, Jesus was crying. The triumphal entry is a wonderful time, and don't take the joy from it, because a few days later, he was going to hang on a cross. These were people who were excited and joyful and singing their hallelujahs and laughing and dancing. And you look at Jesus, and the tears are welling up in his eyes. A number of years ago, I was uh, in the mountains of Tennessee, I was teaching with a group of Presbyterian churches there. They couldn't pay me, but they fed me good. And I love going with them. And then they called from the mountains of North Carolina and said, son, your dad is dying. And I never experienced somebody I loved, and I loved my daddy a lot, dying. And I had to go on and minister. I remember at a covered dish supper before I was to speak, I just broke down and started crying. And a big old pastor, 300 pounds, just enfolded me in his arms. And he said, son, use this. Every time you speak to 10 people, seven of them will have a broken heart. I'm a lot older now. And I've been doing this for a very long time. And he was conservative. Longfellow said, everybody has their secret sorrows. Sometimes when a man or a woman looks hard, they are just sad. You look so spiritual, so together. You laugh so easy and sing so well, but I know. I know the secret you can't share, the pain that you're going through. I know what the doctor said. I know what your husband said to you. I know the dark places of your life because I'm a pastor and I've been doing it for a very long, long time. When I was a pastor in the church, I'd sometimes go to parties that we sponsored and people are getting down, having a good time. And instead of listening to the music, tasting the food and lifting the wine, I'd look at their eyes and they would know that I would know. And sometimes I wept where Jesus wept. At your next party, remember that. And maybe... Maybe you're the one. Just know that Jesus understands. At the party, he wept too. 
Now I move the previous question. Uh, we're Presbyterians. We believe in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And that creates more divisions in the church than you can possibly imagine. One of the things, and I'm not making this up. You think I am, but I'm not. There are theologians that debate whether or not God has any emotions. Westminster Confession of Faith says God is without passions. And they read that as, as God not being kind or overwhelmed with grief or caring for us. And I want to say, are you out of your mind? What do you think the incarnation was about? What do you think the cross of Christ is about? It's the tears of God, the heart of a God who passionately, and the scripture refers to that passion, chases us and loves us and holds us. One of my favorite prayers is from the rabbi's manual. Let me give it to you. Thou art great, and we are small. Thou art infinite, and we are finite. Thou art everything, and we are nothing. Thou art eternal, but we tarry but just a little while. But with all of thy greatness and all of thy power, thou dost bend down low and listen to the sound of our tears as they strike the ground. Is that beautiful? But we know more than that, don't we? We know that the God of the universe entered time and space. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God not only listened to the sound of our prayers, or as the psalmist says, put our tears in his little bottle, he came and mingled his tears with ours. That is a wow God thing. But enough chit-chat, I moved the previous question for the second time. Why in the world did Jesus cry? If you look at that text, the first thing that is obvious is that Jesus wept over the sin of the people that he loved. Jerusalem, stoning the prophets, those who were sent to you, killing the prophets. He looked at them, he saw their sin, and he wept. When we see each other's sin, we don't weep. We just get angry and condemning and self-righteous. I have a Baptist pastor friend. His name is Ken Smith. He's my age, and we get together at Christmas every year just to make sure that one of us had not die. <laughs> I am old. I could die during the service, you know that? I'm cramming for finals, and you never know. <laughs> I had a heart attack four or five years ago, and wasn't that bad. I had it on Monday, and I was speaking for a convention in Nashville on Saturday. But I spoke for the Easter sunrise service at, uh, at SeaWorld in that big stadium, <laughs> and the place was packed. 
And I thought, you know, I'm something else. They're fortunate to have me until I realized they were NASCAR people. <laughs> they, uh, you know, you go to a NASCAR, you don't want to see somebody crash, but if it happens, you want to be there. And that crowd didn't want to see me die, but it had gotten out in the media, I'd had a heart attack. And if I did, they wanted to be there and they wanted to see it. <laughs> After I finished, the guys that put that thing on said, would you do it next year? And I said, no. I'm not willing to have another coronary so you can fill this stupid stadium. <laughs> Billy Graham does it with his spirituality. I have to have a coronary in order to get people to come out. Uh, so Ken and I get together. Ken told me last Christmas, he said, he said, Steve, I'm not spending time with a whole bunch of people anymore. I said, oh, really? Yeah. He said, I made a decision. I'm only going to spend time with people who will cry at my funeral. <laughs> I thought, that's pretty good. I mean, a lot of people I'm spending time with are going to rejoice <laughs> at my funeral. And then I thought, that's true. But I'll tell you something else. I'm going to spend time with people who weep. Not just at my funeral, but over my sins. It's insane that I'm a professor in a graduate school. I am Dr. Brown, try to remember it. But all of my doctorates are phony. I ran away from kindergarten. And it was a struggle from then on. Uh, it's insane that I'm teaching in a graduate school with PhDs from Harvard and Oxford and Cambridge and Duke and a bunch of other places. And here's me. I can't, I can't believe it. I, uh, I got my doctors just by speaking somewhere. And then they made me a doctor more than once and put a hood on me and, and gave me a check. That's a lot easier than spending five years at Oxford in order to get your, uh, your doctorate. But call me doctor or your eminence, either one would be fine. <laughs> when I was in high school, there's a history teacher and I, she's not around anymore, but I loved her. Uh, she gave out exams at the end of a semester. And she didn't give me mine. She said, Stephen, I want you to wait till after class. I want to talk to you. And then she gave me the exam after everybody had left, and it was an F. And I thought she was going to say, you're not living up to your potential. You're not, you're simply not working the way you ought to. You're smarter. than I've heard that all my life, and I'm tired of it. You know what she did? She started crying. I didn't know what to do. She just started weeping. And I thought, what's with that? Don't do this to me. And uh, that was the day I started becoming a good student. We discipline. I mean, we believe in a doctrine called radical and pervasive depravity. But if we find any, we kick you out. <laughs> Isn't that something? How could you do something like that? Jesus doesn't do it that way. He holds us and he weeps over our sins. And then he covers us 
with his blood and his righteousness so we're free and forgiven but he wept because sin will kill you I've got you you shouldn't have come to this service I had a time limit in the early service I may keep you here we'll make it into an evening service but I'm but uh, Tony Campolo spoke at a gay lesbian convention not too long ago, and they gave him a standing ovation. I'd read about it in a magazine, World Magazine. And I called him up and said, Tony, did you get a standing ovation at a gay and lesbian convention? He said, yeah, but it wasn't what the magazine said, and they're going to print a retraction next week. God bless him. All right. I said, what did you do? He said, I got up. And he said, you would have gone any place that that they invite you you'll go and talk about jesus that's true i'd have gone and he said i got up and said i love you guys and he said i wish i could say that what you're doing is right but i can't because what i'm doing is not right we're sinners but what you're doing is going to kill you and i love you and i don't and then he started weeping and at that moment they gave him a standing ovation. Maybe we can learn something from Jesus. Maybe that's where our tears ought to be instead of our anger and our self-righteousness and our pretending to be better than we are. But Jesus didn't just cry over the sins of the people he loved. Jesus wept over the pathos of the world where he lived. Now, it's a microcosm in Jerusalem, big to them, but not to the world at that time. But there is the macrocosm of the cosmos. And Jesus looked at Jerusalem and said, oh, Jerusalem, not one stone left on another. And he wept. And then he saw Afghanistan and he saw Boynton Beach and he saw Miami and he saw New York and he saw London and Iraq and the countries of Africa, and the earthquakes, and the disease, and the pain, and he wept. I, for years, did a skeptics forum where I met with uh, atheists and agnostics in my study, about 15 of them, once a year. You know the hardest thing about a ministry like that is to keep from saying when they talk, are you an idiot? Do you have the brains of a peanut? I can't believe if you've read one book other than a coloring book that you would say something that's stupid. A sinner can repent, but stupid's for, you can't do that. <laughs> what you do is you say, that's really interesting. Let's talk about it. <laughs> but the hard place there and in the world where we live is dealing with the problem of suffering. We have our questions. It's hard. I was reading Job this morning in my devotions and the place where God asked Job all the questions. And Job says in Hebrew, oops, shut my mouth. Because there weren't any answers. And so God came and wept over the pain of the world. I remember a young man in Skeptics Forum who, who uh, was an agnostic and a psychologist, and he was gay. 
and he stuck his stump up. He had lost his hand when he was a kid. And he said, Reverend, where the hell was your God when this happened? Uh, weeping, saying, if I could have done it another way, I would have done it another way. You're living in the best world there is, and it ain't so hot. I know the dark, and I know the pain, and he wept over it. Doesn't fix it, but I feel better about it. And then he wept over not only their sins, not only their pathos, he wept over their disbelief. You did not know the time of your visitation. I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, and you would not for years. I've said there are thousands of people in this town going to hell, and I don't care. I don't know their names. I don't know their kids' names. I don't know a thing about them, and I refuse to fake sorrow over somebody I never met. Every time there's a tragedy, everybody goes, <gasps> and that's all phony. You don't know them. What are you doing? But I understand. I've had friends for years who'll stand in a mall and watch people walk by and weep for their lostness. I want to say, what are you, a fruitcake? Is there something wrong? You don't know then. But of late, God has started putting it on my heart. And I talk to a lot of them, and I see a lot of them. And sometimes I want to say, you know, we're usually angry. And I'm finding myself so sad. And I want to say, don't, don't you understand that there's nothing else? Don't you understand the meaninglessness of where you are? You're having a party on the Titanic, and it doesn't work. I had an email from a friend recently who was in Scotland, and he and I share our love of church history. And John Knox is one of my heroes. Knox said, give me Scotland or I die. And Queen Mary said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than an army of 10,000 men. Well, you know where he's buried? under a parking lot at St. Giles Church in Scotland. And they had a little plaque on a parking meter. And my friend said the last time he was there, they had even take the plaque down so nobody knows. And when he told me that, I wanted to go, oh my, what are you doing? And I thought about how, and I love Scotland. I love going there. And the great number who have lost their heritage in their unbelief. By the way, just so you know, everybody's talking about a post-Christian era. The church is growing just like it always did. But pagans are growing too. That's never been true. They're angry. There's a lusty materialistic paganism and they don't like you at all. And what we wanna do is join up, get the vote and the power and show those suckers. It's not what Jesus did. Jesus looked at them. He knew Camus' statement. The only question with which a thinking person must deal is whether or not he or she should commit suicide. Jesus knows that he gave the alternative. Anybody 
love you the way he loves you or forgives you the way he forgives you or deliver on the promises that he made and people turn away. Everybody's got to believe in something. I believe I'll have another beer. And I see it and I, I just want to die. God, give me a heart like that. And then Jesus not only went for their sins and for the pathos, and for their unbelief, people he loved, he wept for himself. If you go to Gethsemane and he looks at Jerusalem and you can look from that hill right to that garden, all of it, where he went and wept as he faced the cross. Jesus thought about that when he looked at Jerusalem at the triumphal entrance into Jerusalem. And I think some of those tears were for himself. You ever hear people say, I don't pray anything for me. I pray for others. And I want to go, bull. Listen, let me tell you, if the doctor tells me this afternoon that I've got cancer, I'm not praying for your kid's birthday, okay? I'm praying about my cancer. Sometimes it gets so dark and so down and so bad that you don't have any place to go. And just like Jesus, you got to go to the Father and you got to shed your tears before the one who understands, who's been there, and who has done that. C.S. Lewis, it's my hero. If you know any dirt on him, don't let me know. His son wrote a blurb for my last book, and the blurb's better than the book. I'm certainly more proud of it than I am about the book. But in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, and one of them, Aslan is with a little boy whose mother is sick, and he pleads with Aslan to make his mother well. And Aslan isn't going to do it, it seems clear. And the little boy's looking at Aslan's big paws, the Lion of Judah, and then he looks up, and to his surprise, there are tears in the eyes of Aslan. And Aslan says to the little boy, it is very hard, child. We must be kind to one another. It is hard. Do you know why God established Boynton Beach Community Church? a soft place for people who have sinned and still do, who are lonely and still are, who've been afraid and are still afraid, who had doubts and still do on occasion. Pray for each other and pray for yourself because it's a hard, hard world. I have a friend in North Carolina, my best friend. He's a dermatologist, and I love him a lot. But he likes to come to Florida, and he likes to go to SeaWorld. And he was telling me the other day that whenever he eats at a seafood restaurant at SeaWorld, he feels like he's eating a slow learner, <laughs> that he's eating a loser. <laughs> you know, that's what I am. It's what you are. It's what the Bible is clear about. And uh, when it's hard and it's dark, 
Uh, go to him. He's wept. He understands. And then, if you listen to what I taught you, pray for yourself, for each other. He'll listen. You think about that. I'm in. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to help Key Life share the message of God's grace, please pray for us and please consider giving. Just click the main menu button in the upper left corner, then click donate or visit us at keylife.org give.